So, while I've been away, Ian has started the series. Um, I think he's done two sessions on 1 Corinthians, which we're going to be going through. And he's done up to, I think it's verse 9. And um, I've listened to the messages on, the, on YouTube and really been blessed by what Ian has shared there. And we're just really believing that the Lord is going to use our study of this book to, to continue His work in our lives. You know, there's one thing that we can learn from this letter, 1 Corinthians, and that is that the church is not perfect. I don't know if any of you knew that. Uh, the church is not perfect. You know, we're called, yes, we're called, we're set apart by God, we've received grace. I mean, when I think of my life and I think of the grace that God has just poured out upon me, I shudder to think what I would be if it wasn't for God's grace in my life. I shudder to think where I might be, what the kind of person I might be, if it wasn't for Him reaching down and saving me and pulling me out of my sin and saving me from it. And so we've all received grace and we've been enriched in so many ways. Our lives are, I look at my life and it has been enriched just through the knowledge of God, through what I've learned over the years as, um, as a Christian, just walking with the Lord. And, you know, we've been enriched even with spiritual gifts. And we saw that right here in our midst today. And we heard that word which came forward, that we all have received something. Some of those gifts maybe we just haven't realized. But God has enriched our lives in so many ways. And we are loved by Him. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that God loves you? That He really does care for you? You know, sometimes when we're in difficult places in our lives and we're going through difficult circumstances and we're facing things that seem like they're absolutely crushing us, that we cannot bear under them, it's easy for us to think that God does not love us. It's easy for us to question that love. But what do we see in Scripture? God loves us. And there is nothing that can separate us from that love that He has for us in Christ Jesus. That's the reality, regardless of how we feel, regardless of the circumstances that we're going through. And we are being kept by Him. I don't know if we're aware of this fact that God is keeping us. Peter writes this, he says, We are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that will be revealed on the last day. You know, God has got His hand on our lives. We are in the palm of His hand. And so all these great blessings are ours in Christ. They are ours today in Christ. And yet in spite of all this, the reality is that we're still far from perfect. And we still need ongoing transformation and growth to maturity. Every single one of us. I stand before you today in that place. Far from being perfect, my wife bears witness to that. She reminds me of it every day. And so there is this ongoing need for us to be constantly transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that God is 100% committed to that transformation. He's 100% committed to that process. He is moving us. The Bible says, from glory to glory into the likeness of the Lord. We're on a journey, every single one of us. And so, this was the case in the church in Corinth. And we can see this as we study this letter. We're going to see a church that had 
big issues, many problems. A church that, even though it had been established by the Apostle Paul himself, and they had been taught by Paul personally for one and a half years. I mean, wouldn't you have liked to have the Apostle Paul teaching you personally for one and a half years? This was the blessing that this church had. And yet we see that the influence of the sinful human nature and the culture of which they were a part was still very prevalent amongst the believers. And that is the way the church is. We, we, we this anomaly in the world. And oftentimes the world looks at the church and it sees our faults. It sees our flaws. And it's turned off by it. It's turned off from God because of what they see in us. And that's tragic. But it is the way things are. And it brings us to a place where we need to realize that even though there are imperfections in our lives, and even though there are imperfections in the church, I've heard preachers say, if you find a church that's perfect, don't join it, because it'll no longer be perfect. And that's the reality, isn't it? There is no perfect church. There is no perfect group of believers. But that fact does not change God's commitment towards us. And that's what we can see in this letter to the Corinthians. God's commitment to the Corinthians was not altered by the sinful things that were taking place in that church. That doesn't mean that God accepted those sinful things. It doesn't mean that God was pleased with those things. But he was still committed to bringing them forth out of those things into the maturity, into the perfection that he had destined them for. And so this is why this letter was written. God inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter because of God's deep love and concern for the Corinthians. It wasn't written to condemn them. It was written to save them, to warn them, to correct them, to instruct them, to give them the necessary knowledge and understanding that they needed so that they could be blameless on the day of the Lord. So they might grow to maturity. And you know, this is true of God's attitude towards us as a church, as towards us as individuals. Because God has called us, because He has chosen us, because He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son, He's not going to just let us get away with things. He wasn't going to let the church in Corinth get away with it, and He won't let us get away with it. The good work which he began in us, he's going to carry it on to completion until the very day of Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures teach us. God is committed to our complete sanctification and transformation. Why? Because he's committed to our eternal well-being. And isn't that encouraging? I don't know about you, but that encourages me. It gives me some hope. Because if he wasn't, I'd be lost. I'd be without hope. But because he is that way, every single one of us has hope today. We have hope in the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? This is why he's given us scripture. What was scripture given for? It was given to correct us, to train us, to teach us, to guide us in the path of righteousness, 
to equip us with every good thing that we need so that we can be complete and perfect and lacking nothing. And everything God is doing is to bring us to that place. So today, as we come to Scripture, let's just come with that mind, with that attitude, that God has given these words so that we can be perfected. And let's receive what He's going to tell us today in that light. So I've recapped basically what Ian shared over the last two weeks. Let's move on now and let's have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking from verses 10 to 17. Are you ready? Let's read. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. May the Lord bless his word to us today. In this passage, Paul is addressing one of the main problems that was there in the church in Corinth. And it's one that he's going to refer to and address throughout this letter. It's the problem of division, schisms. There were quarrels amongst the members of the church in Corinth. And the church was actually in danger of being torn apart from it. The word that Paul uses here when that's translated division really speaks of a tearing apart. The church was in danger of being torn apart. There were four sects of believers emerging within this one church. There was the Paul sect, and I sort of imagine that they were the ones that said, you know, well, Paul is the founder of this church, and he's the one that we must follow. He's the only the one. The others we must exclude. Then there was the Apollos sect. If you read in Acts chapter 18, it talks about Apollos, and it actually says there that he went down to Corinth and greatly helped the church there. And so the people in this sect were saying, no, Apollos is this highly polished, powerful speaker, because it says about Apollos that that's what he was. Then there was the Cephas sect. Cephas, another name for Peter. And they were probably saying something like, well, you know, Peter's the one that the Lord Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom. And, you know, he gave them the keys to the kingdom and said, whatever you open, uh, whatever you loose will be loosed. Whatever you bind will be bound. And that he's the lead apostle. And then there was the really spiritual sect that said, well, you know what? We only follow Jesus. We only follow Christ. We don't listen to anyone else. Only Christ they were like what we call today the red-letter Christians. They only read the red letters. 
They don't want to listen. They don't want to read what Paul wrote or what Peter wrote. Only the red letters. And so within this church, do you see the quarrel that was beginning to emerge and the divisions that were beginning to emerge? And essentially, that we can see that they were quarreling over church leaders. They were quarreling over men. Men that God had placed in the church to serve them. And they were arguing over which preacher was best and over which was most worthy of their allegiance and respect. Now let's ask a question. What was the source of this quarrel and division? What was instigating it? Well, first of all, we can see this wasn't a matter of religion and it wasn't a matter of doctrine. Paul and Apollos and Cephas were not preaching different religions. They were not leaders in different religions. They were not preaching different doctrines. They were all preaching exactly the same gospel. They were co-workers in God's harvest field. So the divisions that were being that were coming were not based on a matter of religion or doctrine. These preachers themselves, I do not believe, in fact, we can be absolutely categorical, that they were not behind this, these, these divisions or these rifts. None of them were seeking for followers. Apollos didn't come down to Corinth because he wanted to gain the church for himself. All of them, and we'll see this as we go on in this letter, all of them saw themselves as servants of Christ. And they were preaching Christ for the sake of the people, serving them so that they would be offered as pure virgins to Him. That was their heart. So this division had nothing to do with things that the preachers had said or because there was a vying amongst the, these preachers for the, um, the, 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 the following of people, for their, um, their loyalty. What was it caused by? It was caused by this, the fleshly desires within the believers there to be greater than each other, to have recognition, to have something that sort of set them apart from each other, to have a boast. And so you can see this is what it was about. They, it was, you know, well, we follow Paul and he's, he's better than the person you follow. It was really very foolish. And very natural human activity that was taking place here. And we could say this. It was due to their human egos. And how often is it that in the church today, our egos are actually the cause of strife and division? When we really get down to it, we find out that it's not what we think is causing it. It's actually what's in us. It's sinful traits within our hearts that so often split churches and caused these kind of divisions to erupt. Look at how Paul responded. He asks three simple questions. And I believe these are so simple, these questions. I believe that he, he, he literally, I can almost sense a little bit of sarcasm in the way he asked these questions. And I believe that he asked these questions just to show the folly of their thinking. And these are the questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I think the Corinthians had lost sight of these things. They had lost sight of what faith was all about. 
They had lost sight of what the gospel was all about. And so in, the, in these most simple questions, Paul is just bringing them back to reality. And then he expressed his gladness that he had not personally baptized many of them. So let's ask another question. What does Paul's response show us about what was going on? I've already mentioned it. They had lost sight of the gospel and the Lord Jesus, who is the one that the gospel is all about. The gospel's not about a preacher. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about the one that we were singing about today. And our gathering together as believers is primarily, it's about Him. We gain blessing, but our focus must always be on Him. And so what was happening in this church is that they were focusing on themselves and their own desires. And Christ was not all in all to them. And that's a wonderful question for us to ask ourselves. Is Christ Jesus all in all to us? Is He the beginning and the end in our lives? Is He the Alpha and the Omega? Because if He's not, there's always going to be something else coming in, vying for our allegiance. And that will cause divisions and problems in our lives. I want to ask another five questions. I feel just by asking these questions, we'll be able to really gain something out of this passage. Why was Paul glad he had not baptized many of the Corinthians? I wonder why. Why was he glad about that? I've thought about it. And I believe it was because he was able to use that fact to validate the point he was trying to make that his ministry in Corinth was not about gaining a following for himself. You know, and I've traveled around this nation for the last 20 years preaching the gospel. I've been in all kinds of churches, all kinds of environments, sat with pastors from every denomination in this nation. You know, one thing I've come to realize, and I've spoken to pastors about this, is that so many pastors are using baptism to gain a following for themselves. If I baptize you, you, you're now a part of my church. It actually becomes a source of division when in actual fact, when we look in Scripture, baptism is to be a source of unity amongst those who believe. And so Paul was able to say, listen, I baptized hardly any of you. And he said that because he was trying to point out that it's not about him. His ministry was never about him gaining a following. It was always about Jesus Christ. And it was always about bringing them to him. That's the job of every preacher. It's to bring people from where they are and bring them to Jesus. It's to take their hand and bring it and place it in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then step back. Because it's all about Jesus. Let's ask another question. Does Paul's statement in verse 17 that he was not sent to baptize but to preach the gospel suggest he did not consider baptism to be important and necessary? You know, some people look at that and they say, there you are. It shows that baptism is not important and baptism is not necessary. So what's the answer to that question? Not at all. 
We can see from the book of Acts, we can see that baptism was very important to Paul and all the apostles. Why? Because it was instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Paul himself was baptized by Ananias once he became a believer. And even though he wasn't sent to baptize but to preach the gospel, he still believed in the necessity of baptism and baptized people. Acts chapter 16, we see he baptized Lydia and her whole household after they had come to believe. Can you imagine that? Paul had preached the gospel to them. They had put their faith in Christ. And right there, when, when it was still darkness, he baptized them. In Acts chapter 19, we see Paul baptized 12 disciples. And in Acts chapter 18, it tells us that all the Corinthians that believed were baptized. So the people that Paul was writing to here, there was not one of them that was not baptized. So that statement that he made has nothing to do with negating the importance and necessity of people being baptized. Even in his letters, Paul spoke about this. So why did Paul say that he was not sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel? What was he saying? Well, he was saying this. Baptizing people was not the purpose of his ministry. Preaching the gospel was. Preaching it in a way that would not negate the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That would not stop it transforming and saving people. So let's think about this. The Bible says this, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Nowhere in scripture does it say baptism is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It says the gospel is. So just because someone is baptized does not mean they will be saved. Do you believe that? You know, there's some people that believe as long as I've been baptized, I've been baptized as an infant, I will be saved. There must be faith in our hearts and repentance in our hearts first. And where does faith and repentance come from? They are brought to us through the preaching of the gospel. And it is the gospel that readies someone for baptism because baptism is the response of faith to the claims of the gospel. That's what baptism is. It is the faithful response to the claims of the gospel. And I liken it to this. It's like a wedding ceremony. If a man and woman said that they loved each other and yet they never got married, I think we'd begin to question their commitment to each other. So it is with baptism. People don't get married so that they can give their hearts to each other. They get married because they have already given their hearts to each other. Yet, in getting married, there is a sealing of what has already taken place in their hearts. That happens as they exchange those vows and at that ceremony they are joined together. And that's the way it is with baptism. There's something very real and tangible that takes place when someone who has faith in their heart and a repentant heart towards God is baptized. We are baptized because we believe and are repentant. 
because we want to be joined to Christ and publicly identified with Him. Because we want to die to our old way of life and begin a new way of life. And that's what baptism symbolizes. It's because we want to share in the grace of Christ. Baptism is the next step after believing and repenting. And it has a work of sealing us in relationship with Christ. And once we're baptized, we officially, publicly recognized as a believer and a member of the body of Christ. It changes our status just as getting married does. It marks the end of our former autonomous way of life, our life without God. And it starts this new life under His Lordship, guardianship, and care. But it's not the goal. Just like a wedding ceremony is not the goal. People don't fall in love just so they can have a wedding ceremony. The wedding ceremony is just a ceremony that marks the end of their singleness and starts this new life, this married life. And that's what baptism is. It's not the goal, just the entrance point into this brand new way of life, of fellowship with Jesus Christ, of submission to Him, and of identity in Him. It's not what Christianity is all about. What is Christianity all about? It's about the gospel. People who want to join a club or a society may go through a process in order to join that club or society. Is the process the goal? No, it's not. It's being in that club and society that's the goal. And so this is what baptism is like. We go through it, but it's never the focus. It's never the purpose. It's never the end goal of Christianity. It's important. It's necessary. But it's not the substance. It's not the object of Christianity or our faith. What is? Relationship with Jesus Christ. Sharing in His grace. Being one of His people. Being a child of God. And it's baptism that God has given to us to be an entrance point into all of these things for the person who believes. And so if you believe the gospel today, maybe there's some of you here today, you believe the gospel in your heart. And you have a repentant heart. You desire to commit your life to following the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you have not been baptized. You need to be. And you can come up and speak to me after the service or you can contact the office. And we can make necessary arrangements for that to take place. So why did Paul say that his purpose was to preach the gospel? Because that is the substance of what Christianity is all about. That is what our faith is based on. That is what brings us to repentance and into relationship with Jesus. It's the gospel. God works through His Word. Let's ask another question. Why is the unity of the church so important? So notice this, that Paul appealed to the believers to be united. Just look at verse 10 again. He said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means this appeal was being made not just on Paul's, by Paul's desire, but it was being made 
under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God doesn't want His family divided. Do you know we're all members of one family? He doesn't want us divided. Jesus doesn't want His church divided. We're all members of His church, His body. And He wants us to be perfectly knitted together as one. This takes a work of God. Nothing less than a work of God is going to bring this to pass. Just look around the world. How easy is it for people to get on with each other? Just look at all the conflicts happening around the world right now. Look at the enmity, the conflicts that happen even within our own nation. People will not get on with each other. There's always going to be divisions. But Christ wants to bring people from every kind of walk, every kind of society, class of society, nation, background, perspective, and bring them all together in one in Him. That's His goal. Do you know that division does not benefit us? Paul said this when he wrote to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 15. He said, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And then in Psalm 133, if you can just put that up, thank you. It says, verses 1 to 3, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured down on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So you do see the contrast between what Paul said, if we bite and devour each other, we'll be destroyed by each other. And what we read here in Psalm 133. So let's ask another question. What is the basis for unity in the church? Is it all of us having the same personalities? Is it having the same gifts? Is it going about doing things the same way? I mean, if you go to that church over there, they, they may worship slightly differently to what we do. Is that what the source of unity is going to be? Is it seeing everything exactly the same way? If that's what unity is going to be based on, you know what? It's an impossible thing. Because you just get ten people together and you're going to have ten different ways of looking at things. You're going to have ten different personalities. You see, the, the wonder of what God is doing in His church, is that He is bringing it together and yet He's not making it, He's not bringing it into uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. There is great diversity in the body of Christ. I mean, I just look around, not one of you looks the same. Every single one of you is different from the person next to you. God has made us all unique. God has made us all different. And yet He wants to bring us all together into this one body that will bring this incredible glory to God. So let's ask the final question. What is this unity based on? 
If it's not based on all these things, what is it based on? And there are four things found in this passage. Number one, the fact that we all have the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not, he's not divided. We all have the same Lord and Savior. Number two, the fact that we all belong to Him. He died for us. He was crucified for us. He shed His blood for us. He ransomed us. He purchased us with His own precious blood. Every one of us belongs to Him. We, he's our Lord and we belong to Him. Thirdly, the fact that we were all baptized into Christ in His name. And look at what Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 to 29 says. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you see in there, there is a lot of differences. There are slaves, there are free people, there are male, there are female, there are Jew and Gentile, and that's just part of the list. And yet, we've all been made one. Every single one of us made one. You know, I've had the privilege of traveling around the world. I've been in the United States preaching the gospel. I've been in Australia preaching the gospel. We've just come back from South Africa where we went and fellowshiped in a church there. And we've done it on, on many occasions in past visits. And you know what I've discovered? It doesn't matter where you go. You can be in a totally foreign culture. I've traveled around this nation and been in the different cultures of this nation. And yet, Christ brings us all together. I've sat with people around a fire that didn't even have a pair of shoes to put on. People that just lived in a very rudimentary hut. And we've sat there frying peanuts over the fire, singing praises to God under the, the midnight moon with absolute unity. Different races, different backgrounds, different social status, and yet brought together in one by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the incredible miracle of what God is doing in the world. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue being brought together in one, in one faith, with one Lord, with one allegiance, serving Him, serving His name. Rejoicing in Him. That's what this is all about. And so this is why division is so hated by God. Because it works right against the very purpose of what God is trying to do in the earth. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that He's bringing everything together under one head, Christ. And so when we divide over things that we shouldn't be dividing over, what happens is we actually become servants of Satan and enemies of God. And I don't think any of us want to be in that place. Unity can be easily destroyed. 
the unity that we are enjoying in this church can be destroyed. It requires effort. It requires us to guard that unity in our hearts. And that's where it begins. Where does division begin? In our hearts. Where do we guard it? We guard it by, we guard unity by guarding our hearts against things that would cause us to become divided. We have to do it. Someone offends you in the church, what's the easy thing to do? The easy thing is to get offended. The easy thing is to say, well, I'm not going to fellowship with them anymore. I'm going to leave. The easy thing is to begin speaking bitter words. It's so easy for the unity that God is building us in to be destroyed if we're not careful. Selfishness, when we're consumed with self, when our lives are taken up in self-seeking and it's all about us, it's always going to lead to division. Because if you've got this person seeking for self and this person seeking for self, the, the end is division. But the love of Christ in our hearts will always draw us together. So we need to guard our hearts. And today what we're going to do, if you could just give me that loaf of bread, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Thanks, son. We're going to take communion together. And I've got a loaf of bread here, and you're going to see why in a moment. I just want to read two short passages of Scripture. I'm just going to put this here. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 to 17. These are both teachings that Paul gave right here in 1 Corinthians about the purpose of communion and the work of communion. Why we take communion, what it represents. So look at chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? We're going to do this in a moment. We're going to be participating through taking that communion in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Look at verse 17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share of one loaf. Now often with the way that we do communion in these modern times, we lose this symbolism. We don't see it. Because you just get a plate of pieces of biscuit or whatever it might be on that plate. And we don't realize that the, the symbolism is actually the breaking of bread. So back then they would take a loaf of bread. We don't like to do it because we're so hygiene conscious these days. Back then they didn't really care about that. And they would take the bread and that loaf represented the body of Jesus Christ. And they would give thanks for it, which is why it's called the Eucharist. And then they would break it because Jesus' body was broken on that cross for us. And then from that one loaf, everybody would get a piece. That's what Paul is talking about here. 
We all partake of one loaf because we are all members of one body, the body of Jesus Christ. And so such a powerful symbolism that as we all take of it and we participate in the body of Christ, we are knit together spiritually. We are together in one body under Christ. So we're going to do this today. Now the way we're going to do it, Ian and I had a little discussion about this because we said, how can we do this? Because we just know people are so hygiene conscious these days that if we break the bread up there, some people are not going to come just simply because they don't want bread that's been in my hands. And I understand. So what we've done is we've taken another loaf and it's been broken hygienically. <laughs> and as you take that peace today, we want to just say to ourselves, we are members of one body. Let's just have a look at the second scripture and then we're going to do it. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27 to 29. Look at what Paul says here. He says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. He's not talking about whether you're worthy to take it or not. He's saying, how are you taking it? In what manner are you taking it? He says this, they will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So what we're going to be doing today is a very sacred thing. None of us want to be sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. None of us wants to be in that place. Verse 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning, look at this, without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Isn't it terrible that something that is called the cup of blessing can actually become a source of judgment just if we do not treat it in the way that it should be treated? And so today, as we come together, I want to just spend a few moments for each of us just to search our hearts. And I believe that Paul, in the context of this letter, in the context of that chapter, chapter particularly chapter 11, when he's talking about examining ourselves, I, I believe he's also talking about this. Examining ourselves to see if there is anything that we have ought against another brother or sister. Is there anything dividing us with another brother or sister in Christ? Is there a brother and sister in Christ that we're not talking to? Remember what the Lord Jesus said? He said, when you come to present your gift at the altar, and there you remember that you have something against your brother. First go be reconciled, then come present your gift. Our relationships with one another are very, very important to God. Highly, highly important to Him. And so let's just spend a moment. Maybe we've said some things against somebody that we shouldn't have said. Maybe we felt like we had a right to do it. But did we really? Let's just spend some time just examining our hearts before the Lord. And if you find something there, and you'll know if there's something there, just confess it quietly where you are to Him. Just ask Him to forgive you, to cleanse you, so that we can come to this table with a right heart and in a right manner. Should we do that? Lord, we thank you that we can come to your table today 
we can come and partake of your body. We can come and partake of your blood. And all the blessings and benefits that accrue through both your body and blood, through what you've done for us on the cross. Lord, we come and we ask that you would help us as we examine our hearts before you today. Forgive us for where we have said things against people, or we have held grudges against people, or had attitudes towards people that we should not have had. Father, we want to forgive them, even as you have forgiven us. We want to release them, even as you have released us. So help us as we search our hearts right now. Help us to be able to make amends where amends need to be made. Father, help us and keep us from being sources of division and strife in the church, here in this fellowship. Keep us, Father, from sinning against you in this way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.